Just before we start the May extra edition of the Jodcast, we've got a little question for you. Well, actually, it's more of a joke. How many astronomers does it take to change a street lamp bulb? That's how many astronomers does it take to change a street lamp bulb? The answer after this. The Jodcast. Celebrating one year of extra editions with David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast, May 2008, extra issue. Hello, and welcome to the May extra edition of the Jodcast. Unfortunately, we have no Nick this month, but we do have Stuart. Hi. Hi, Dave, and hi, listeners.、Um, well, we do have Nick. He's just in pre-recorded form. Ah, yes, Nick is not live. <laughs> he is alive, but he is alive, but not、yes. live. So, in the show, this issue, we talk to Dr. Anthony Challoner of the University of Cambridge about the CMB. We also ask your questions to our resident astronomer Tim O'Brien. But first, before all of that, here's. Your feedback, Stuart. What we got this time? Okay, well, we had a few reviews on iTunes. We had a review from Blue Radio, from Doug dot VA, who's an astronomy grad student in the US. We also had a review from Jai or G, just J I. I'm not quite sure、Yee、how you probably actually.、Um, they said the Jodcast is witty and informative and long in a good way.、Uh, we also had reviews from Muttley thirty two, Starry David, who thoroughly recommends the recent Nam. Edition, the two-hour blockbuster, as he as he、oh, called it. Yes, that was a. And also our very first review from New Zealand from Branscom. So thank you very much to all of those people for giving us reviews on iTunes. And if you haven't yet given us a review on iTunes, and you have iTunes on your computer, please go and give us a review. Yes, please. The more five stars, the better. So anyway, Dave, you've got our feedback from Facebook, which we haven't visited in a while. Yes, I do.、Um, we have had a few wall posts. And just to bring you up to date with membership, we now have 158 members on the Facebook group. We've had a post from Jeremy Cameron Buck from the University of Manchester, who says that the Jodcast is one of the best podcasts he listens to. He loves the news, and also Ian Morrison's sultry tones speaking on the night sky, which are a great way to chill out while staring out the window at night. Of course, he's slightly biased because he's from the University of Manchester, but well, apart、yes. from that. <laughs> Uh, Andrew Hobson loves the Jodcast and says it's the most fantastic and diverse collection of accents he's heard in a single <laughs> podcast. And Rapid Eye says、uh, that they just figured they wander over here and spread some graffiti. Ah, Rapid、uh, Eye! We've had reviews from Rapid Eye before. Yes,、uh, they've been listening for a while now, and they love to hear it while they're at the scope out in my pasture. Which is oh, very impressive.、Good. Yeah. Over in North Carolina, and that is the news from Facebook. Okay, into the emails. We've had an email from Malcolm Stone, who has been listening to us on a cruise ship going through the Panama Canal, and has been listening to us while in the gym on the treadmill. So it's great to hear about the many different exciting places that people are when they listen to the Jodcast. <laughs> also, thanks to Martin Watts, who provided the joke that you will hear in the intro and outro this time. 
And also thanks to Magiel Janssen, who says it's a great show and can never be too long. And by the way, aren't astronomers just the coolest people ever? <laughs> and he also loves the abbreviations that we think of. <laughs> yeah, I suppose there are some people that just don't spend long enough on thinking up abbreviations with such things as the very large array. A good abbreviation recently has been OWL, the Overwhelmingly Large Telescope. <laughs> Although it has been scoped back a little bit from 100 metres to 42, so now it's just being called the Extremely Large Telescope, which is a bit more boring. <laughs> uh, but then again, it's not just astronomers who think up stupid abbreviations for things. Uh, for example, in Cambridge, one of the maths departments is called DAMPT, uh, which is otherwise known as the P Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics. And Dr. Anthony Chalinor is our interviewee and works in DAMPT, and Nick caught up with him to find out about the cosmic microwave background. Okay, so your research is into the cosmic microwave background, right? That's right. Give us a bit of a backgrounder on the cosmic microwave background. What is it? The cosmic microwave background is really the oldest light that we can observe in the universe. We believe that this, this radiation was produced at very, very early times, um, basically when the light nuclei formed uh, in the universe. And our best evidence for this is that it has a, a spectrum, so um, a dependence on, on frequency or wavelength of the radiation, which is very well described by what's called a black body spectrum. Mm -hmm. So this is the same sort of spectrum as you would get uh, if you had uh, a hot object like the sun, for example. Whereas the surface of the sun is at a few thousand Kelvin, the, the microwave background is only at a, a few Kelvin, 2.7 Kelvin. So the interpretation of this is that it was produced when the universe was very dense uh, and very hot at a very early time. Everything has this nice black body spectrum, and then the expanding universe has cooled that radiation. It's stretched out the wavelength of all the radiation, and we end up with radiation at a much lower temperature, which is what we observe today. So the microwave background was, was uh, first discovered at the end of the 1960s, and since then, the interest has really been to look for fluctuations in the temperature of that radiation. And the fluctuations are, are essentially imprinted by clumping in, in the way matter is distributed uh, in the universe at early times. When we talk about fluctuations in the CMB, the cosmic microwave background, we're talking about fluctuations in space, aren't we, in, in position rather than in time. That's right. So all, all we can really do at the moment is, is look at different directions on the sky and see how the temperature in one direction compares to, to another. It is a very interesting issue about uh, what the the time dependence of those fluctuations would be. Um, but basically, as with everything in cosmology, uh, things evolve on a very, very slow time scale. Mm. Um, so uh, billions of years, basically. And so, yeah, if we waited long enough, uh, things would look different in time. But to us, we just see a snapshot of we what see a the... Snapshot. Right. And the thing with the... When you have a hot object and you, you suddenly make it bigger, which you can do in terms of how we think the universe expanded, then the temperature goes down because you've just expanded it. Wouldn't we expect, you know, the, what, what, we, what do we learn from what we see in the, these fluctuations? So you'd think that something which was very, very hot and you suddenly expanded it, it should be roughly the same temperature, right, everywhere you looked. Right. So, um, so the point is that the temperature is it's very nearly the same uh, in all directions, but it's not quite. And th those fluctuations are, are really small. They're at the level of about one part in, in 10 to the 5. Mm -hmm. and, and what these fluctuations are telling us about is basically the way, as I said, matter is clumped at, at a time when the universe was about a thousandth of its, its current size. Um, so the way to think about this is, is, say in some region of space, you have an over-density of, of matter. So locally, you have more matter than you do on average. 
then as the microwave background radiation climbs away from that, that local blob of matter to reach us today, it's sort of climbing out of a gravitational potential well due to the matter. And due to, um, to general relativistic effects, um, so effects predicted by Einstein, um, what happens is that the, uh, the wavelength of the radiation receives an extra stretching due to that climbing out of a potential well. And hence the radiation appears a little bit colder mm. than, than it would otherwise. So on, on sort of large uh, scales, so scales of a few degrees uh, on the sky, if, if we see a blob in, in, uh, in the temperature of the microwave background of that sort of scale that, that's uh, colder than, than average, then that corresponds to a, a region in space when the universe was much smaller which is more dense uh, than, than average. Okay, so there's interesting things coming out of this. First of all, you're measuring temperature differences one part in 100,000. Is that in real terms? Is that 100,000th of a Kelvin? Is that the difference in temperature that you're measuring? That's right. Um, so it's it's 100,000th uh, of about 3 Kelvin. That's remarkable. So it's it requires remarkable technology to, to be able to do this. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's actually why the search for these fluctuations in temperature uh, went on for a long time before anyone actually found anything. Um, so the micro background was uh, was first discovered, as I said, the middle of the 1960s, uh, and it took until 1992 before these primordial fluctuations were actually detected. And even then, to detect them, people had to basically go out... Well, people didn't, but <laughs> they had to launch instruments out into space to, yeah. to be able to get away from things like the Earth's atmosphere, which glows very brightly and, and disturbs your measurements. The measurements that had been taken prior to 1992, they showed pretty much what we expected, right? What I mentioned earlier was that everything seemed to be very, very flat in temperature distribution. It seemed to be what you'd expect if you took a, a, a regular object and expanded it. The temperature went down very, very evenly. But what happened in 1992 that was so exciting? Okay, so, um, I mean, theorists for a long time had been predicting that there ought to be these fluctuations in temperature. And actually, the field was sort of reaching crisis point where the theorists had been able to revise their models uh, to sort of keep in line with the data, so the observationalists weren't seeing anything, so the theorists tweaked their theory a little bit. But things had got about as far as they could, so there basically wasn't any room for manoeuvre uh, mm. anymore. Um, and if these fluctuations hadn't been detected, then basically our, our understanding of the way that matter uh, evolves in the, the universe must have been fundamentally wrong. Fortunately, uh, the fluctuations came at just the level that was being predicted at the time, so this was a sort of saving grace for our whole paradigm for how structure formed in the in, in the universe. How were these fluctuations detected back in the, the early 90s? So they, they were first detected by the COBE satellite, the Cosmic Background Explorer, and a particular ex, uh, instrument on that called the Differential Microwave Radiometer. And essentially it worked by uh, performing what's called a differential measurement, uh, which is a very good way of measuring, if you're trying to measure small differences in, in quantities, it's often easier instead of trying to measure an absolute value, you measure a difference relative mm -hmm. to some reference load. Um, so essentially this is how the DMR instrument uh, functioned. But essentially the technology was, was basically radio uh, technology, uh, so quite a, what is now old-fashioned technology. So we should, we should point out, of course, that it's a cosmic microwave background, so we observe in... Microwave. That, that, that's right, yeah. So the, these are frequencies of a few tens of, of gigahertz. Let's go back to what you said earlier before, that the cosmic microwave background basically shows us where the matter was when the radiation was released, when the universe was one thousandth of its size. It shows where the matter in the universe was. But how 
did the matter get there in the first place? What told the matter to clump in that particular way in those particular regions? So, so I mean, this is a, a sort of very outstanding question in, in cosmology at the moment. We'd, we'd like to understand. But w- what we believed happened was that in the very, very early universe, when the, the temperature of the universe was very, very high and matter was very, very dense, um, what we believed happened is that quantum processes were occurring on very small length scales, um, but they got stretched up by a process called cosmological inflation, up to very large cosmological scales. So these quantum fluctuations are the same quantum fluctuations that are present all around us at the moment. So what we think of as the vacuum is actually a very interesting quantum mix of all sorts of of activity going on. Um, And there are, you know, virtual particles popping out of the vacuum all the time and then annihilating. And similar things were happening uh, in, in the infant universe but the thing that was different then was because of this this very rapid expansion that we believe happened because of a particular form of matter that's posited to be present in the early universe, those fluctuations got stretched into essentially classical fluctuations. And what we then believe happened was that the, the matter that was, this strange matter that was causing the universe to, to undergo this cosmological inflation, this, this accelerated expansion, it then decayed into all the particles uh, and the radiation that we now see around us. Uh, but during that decay, there was an imprint of how that inflationary matter was actually distributed because of these quantum fluctuations. Um, so what we really believe we're seeing is, is quantum effects writ very, very large on the sky. When we talk about very, very large, what sort of size are the, of, what are the sizes of these structures that we're talking about which were seeded by quantum fluctuations? So the, um, if we think about the, the sort of scale of the observable universe, if we think about how far we can actually look back in time, um, it corresponds to about uh, 10 billion light years. And basically we're, we're probing uh, the way matter is distributed on that sort of scale. Um, the only thing we have to be a little bit careful of is to factor in the expansion of the uh, in the universe in all this. So those fluctuations today would have that scale, whereas when we run them back in time to the time when the uh, the fluctuations in the microwave background were produced, everything was a factor of a thousand smaller. So the presence of these structures, these large-scale structures that we see in the universe, strings of galaxies and clumps of galaxies, back when the universe was very, very young, could have been simply the difference between a tiny quantum fluctuation one way or the other. That, that's absolutely right. So, um, I mean, of course, if we look at the way galaxies, for example, are distributed today, things don't look at all smooth. Things are, you know, what we call very, very non-linear. Whereas when we look at the microwave background, the fluctuations are very smooth. Uh, they're sort of one part in 100,000, as you said. And the reason for that is is basically the fact that if you have a blob of matter, which is, uh, so where there's more matter uh, than the average in the universe, what it will tend to do is accrete surrounding matter. So these fluctuations in the matter actually grow uh, via a process of gravitational accretion, mm. just attracting uh, other matter. And this is what we believe happened. So these fluctuations started off very small, so the primordial level was at the sort of level of one part in 100,000, but because of accreting surrounding matter, it grew up to, to give us very large-scale fluctuations that we now see in the large-scale structure of the, the universe. This was always a problem with our understanding of the Big Bang cosmology, as I understand it. If you take a lot of energy, like the energy of the entire universe, and cram it into a very, very small point, the singularity as we understand it, which we we call the Big Bang, and then let it expand, the problem was that if you had all that energy in one small spot, it was very, very, very hot, and therefore presumably very, very smooth. You couldn't have some little parts of that tiny volume with all that energy 
comprised together being slightly higher than the other because it would all just be smoothed out, it would be thermally smoothed out and become very, very um, homogeneous. So in order to produce these large clumpiness, this large-scale structure, this clumpiness that we see in the universe, we needed something different. We need some kind of difference between one point in, in, the, in the early universe and another. And so we had to appeal to physics, and it's these quantum fluctuations. Tell us a little bit about these quantum fluctuations themselves. What are they? Well, first of all, have I got that right? I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, made, I just made a statement. I didn't actually ask a question. Okay. No, is, that, that is basically true. So, um, I mean, the, the, the most important advance here really was this idea of, of inflation, cosmological inflation in the early universe. So perhaps I should say a bit, bit more about that first mm. of all. The, the problem is that normally we would expect matter gravitationally to attract other matter. So if you throw a ball up in the air, uh, while it's, it's rising up, it slows down, eventually turns around and comes back to us. And the universe should actually be acting in the same way. So the universe should be, should be expand, well, is expanding, we know it is, but because of the attraction of all the matter in the universe, um, it ought to be slowing down in its expansion. In the early universe, we believe that um, because of the presence of a strange kind of matter, which was effectively almost repulsive gravitationally, it, it had a large uh, it had a large pressure which could uh, the effect of this pressure was to, to basically change the gravitational attraction uh, into a gravitational repulsion, um, and the effect of that is that uh, this expanding object instead of attracting itself, it effectively tried to blow itself apart. Mm. Um, so the effect of this is that a very very small region of space, which is originally so small that everything had had time to communicate with with itself, it's what we say to be in causal contact with itself that very small region can be blown up by an enormous amount, something like 10 to the 50 or so uh, in, in size. 10 to the 50, that's crazy. That's one with 50 zeros. That's one that. with 50 zeros, <laughs> an absolutely enormous amount. Um, it can get blown up basically to encompass our entire observable universe. Hmm. Um, and th- this is why we think that the, the microwave background is, is basically so smooth when we look at it. If, if this period of inflation, cosmological inflation, hadn't happened in the early universe, it would have been a real mystery why, when we look at different regions of the sky, why the temperature is so uniform. So we actually needed inflation to, uh, to, to understand that very basic property that the universe is so smooth on large scales. And simply by multiplying a very, very small effect, these quantum effects, these, these quantum processes, which we know operate at very, very low energies, very, very small energies and very, very low scales, by something like 10 to the 50, we can get something very, very small becoming something very, very big. That, that, that's or right. at, least, at least noticeable so that you know, things like gravitational accretion can occur on, on reasonable time. That, that's right. So, that, I mean, there's two aspects. The 10 to the 50 refers to the, uh, the sort of length scale of these fluctuations, so they get stretched out. But the other thing is that they, they, they can be amplified in their amplitude can get larger as well. Mm. And this happens... Um, at, in a, a very specific time during inflation. Um, so basically, as, as modes get stretched out uh, during the cosmological inflation, the, the quantum character um, is basically replaced by, once they get stretched to a certain critical length scale, they become essentially classical in, in character. And they have uh, an, an amplitude which is just basically determined by the rate at which the universe was expanding at that time. So that's what's setting the, the basic amplitude of the, the fluctuations. Um, and then later on, as, as matter accretes due to gravity, uh, the, the amplitude can get boosted further. Hmm. When we look at the sky, when we talk about the sky, we're talking about the entire sky that we can see with our satellites. 
we see these fluctuations. What do we actually measure? We measure the, the differential temperature, but we're talking about fluctuations at various scales. So we want to measure small fluctuations and then slightly bigger fluctuations and even bigger fluctuations. So what is it that we actually measure? What is the, the, the data that we receive that we use to make these predictions about the universe? So the way these experiments work is basically by they, they scan across the sky uh, to produce a, a survey of the, the full sky. So at any time, what you're basically measuring is the, the temperature uh, along a single direction. And then, and then as, as time goes by, the instrument repoints uh, to a different direction and then measures the temperature somewhere else. And then there's a whole load of uh, data analysis steps that have to go on to try and convert that data, which is essentially a time series, uh, to convert that into... Uh, first of all, uh, a map of the, what the temperature looks like on the sky, and then try and extract various statistical properties of, of that map. The easiest way, actually, to confront the data with our theoretical models is to ask, uh, what is the sort of amplitude of the fluctuations in temperature as a function of angular scale? Mm. Um, and we do this basically by looking for blobs uh, within the temperature at a fixed angular scale and ask what's the amplitude of those. When we talk about amplitude, do we mean how many there are or how strong they how, are? Sorry, how strong they are. Right. Yeah, that's right. How um, deep the temperature difference is, essentially, or how, you know. That, that's right. Um, and what we basically find is uh, a, a very interesting dependence on the strength of the fluctuation with angular scale. Um, and in particular, we find a sort of oscillatory character whereby certain angular scales seem to have much more power than, than other angular scales. Um, and this is reflecting also something very interesting that happened in the, uh, in the early universe. It's basically reflecting the acoustic physics of how the primordial plasma, so the, the stuff that made up the universe uh, when the temperature was greater than a few thousand degrees, it, it's reflecting the dynamics of, of, of that plasma. So effectively, this is like doing acoustic uh, physics. It's the physics of sound waves bouncing around, but these are sound waves on cosmological scales. Mm. And so these huge wavelengths. And what, what we're basically doing when we, we look at the fluctuation amplitude as a function of scale, we're measuring the amplitude of these sound waves with, with different, different wavelengths. So these are sound waves in the primordial plasma when the universe was very, very young, soon after the uh, universe came into being. We should point out, of course, that when we talk about acoustic in this sense, we're talking about longitudinal waves in a, in, in a medium. Because we all know that we can't, you know, Sound doesn't travel in, in a pure vacuum. But we're not talking about a pure vacuum here. We're talking about this very hot, energized plasma when the universe was very, very young. So we have these sort of sound waves which are bouncing around in the primordial plasma of the universe, and that somehow gets imprinted on how strong a particular uh, sized CMB fluctuation is. What does that tell us? That's right. So, I mean, uh, one way to think about this, imagine waves on a violin string, uh, for example. Um, th these are what are called standing waves. Um, so the whole string sort of vibrates in unison. And at certain points, that the string is undisturbed, whereas uh, a little bit later in time, it's at maximum displacement. And uh, the time period between when it goes from zero displacement to maximum displacement depends on the frequency of the, the wave, or equivalently the wavelength of the standing wave. So the same thing goes on in the primordial plasma, in that fluctuations on different angular scales will vibrate in an acoustic manner at, on different time scales. So what's happening is that at the time when basically the, the fluctuations in the microwave background are imprinted, uh, on the, the sky. And this, I should have said, this This occurs basically when the universe stops being very opaque uh, and very ionized. 
as the temperature cools, basically neutral atoms form, and the radiation stops interacting with matter. It, it travels unimpeded, and that's what we see in the microwave. The universe becomes transparent. The universe becomes transparent, that's right. Um, so what we see is conditions at that time when it just became transparent. And the, the fluctuations on, on different uh, length scales, which are bouncing Earth's sound waves with different frequencies... At the time the universe became transparent, some of those uh, sound waves are just caught at their maximum displacement, and some are just caught at zero displacement. Mm. So those that are caught at maximum displacement give us features, angular features on the microwave background sky, which are maximal in amplitude, whereas those that are caught at zero displacement uh, basically give no fluctuation on that particular scale. Um, so what we can really read off from that uh, is something about both the composition of the universe, um, so how much matter there is, how much of the ordinary matter, so that the stuff that we're made of, basically atoms, and how much of this mysterious dark matter that we know must be present, uh, basically to keep galaxies bound together. Um, we can, for example, measure the relative proportions of, of those. Hmm. But we can also say something about the, the sort of global geometry of the, the universe, so remember, we're talking about these sound waves, uh, which have uh, a spatial wavelength associated with them. But what we see on the microwave sky uh, is an angular wavelength, uh, if you like. And the relation between those depends basically on what we call the angular diameter distance back to when the universe became transparent. So that's one of the key things we can actually measure from microwave background fluctuations, this, this angular diameter distance, which is telling us something about the geometry of, of the universe. Just to, to put a bit more on that, if the universe were, for example, uh, if the geometry were, were sort of Euclidean, like the simple geometry that we learn at school, then there's a very simple parallel straight lines uh, re- remain parallel and never never converge onto each other. Sound waves of a given wavelength in the primordial plasma will appear with a very characteristic angular scale in the sky today. Mm. But if instead, say we curved the universe up, so it was like the three-dimensional analogue of a, the surface of a sphere... Um, then what we find is that uh, light rays tend to sort of converge together and there's a focusing effect. Um, and what that does, uh, it tends to make fluctuations on the microwave sky look larger uh, in, in, in angular scale than they would do in, in a Euclidean universe. The thing is, the- theorists can predict rather accurately what physical size these sound waves ought to have in the early universe. And then you can read off um, from looking at their angular size, you can read off what the geometry of the, the universe is. It's a remarkable amount of information you can get by looking at just uh, essentially a, a two-dimensional map of of the cosmic microwave background, just measuring you know, how strong fluctuations of various size are. It's a that, phenomenal amount of physics which you, you learn from this. That, that's right. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the, the microwave background really has revolutionized uh, our understanding of the, the, the cosmos. And, okay, there's been a lot of complementary data sets that have been helping out uh, to do this, but the, the micro-background is, is such a nice, clean probe of the earliest times in the universe that it really has been invaluable in this, this quest to try and understand the properties of the universe. What's next? Well, so for microwave background research, um, one very exciting thing that's, that's going to happen is a new satellite uh, is, is going to be launched. So this is a European satellite called the Planck satellite, hopefully going to be launched later towards the end of this year. And compared to current uh, observations, this will measure fluctuations on much smaller angular scales and with much better precision. Mm. So really what we hope to do with, with Planck is to map out these fluctuations in temperature 
very, very accurately and basically extract all of the cosmological information that is present uh, in the temperature of the microwave background. So this, this is a very exciting prospect and, for example, will improve our understanding of what the universe is made of and what its geometry. We hope to understand that at the sort of percent level uh, after the Planck data is analysed. Fantastic. We can't wait. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome. Thanks, Nick. And actually, Dave, I'm particularly excited about the European Space Agency's Planck spacecraft because that's what I do in my day job. Uh-huh. So I'm going to try to bring some special Planck interviews from behind the scenes later on in the year. Right. And what uh, still has to be done in the lead up to launch? Well, we've now integrated the instruments which form the Planck spacecraft together with the telescope and during the summer we're going to be testing them, making sure that all the instruments work as we expect they do um, tuning mm-hmm. various parts of them to make sure that they work a little bit better so all that has to be done and tuned in order to verify that everything still works before we send it off to Kourou in French Guiana for the launch campaign. Okay, well thank you very much and uh, looking forward to asking you more questions as the year goes by. But of course there's someone waiting here who is always answering our questions. It's Dr. Tim O'Brien, and Nick went to ask your questions. Yes, Ask an Astronomer Time with Dr. Tim O'Brien. Thank you very much again, Tim, for answering questions. Hello. First question comes from Mark, and he writes, As I understand it, our solar system orbits the supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy. So there must be a large force of gravity on our solar system. Why aren't our planets on a massive ellipse? towards the centre of the galaxy. Okay, so uh, so I guess the question is saying, imagining this position, which we believe to be the case, that there's this massive black hole at the centre of our galaxy, and, and he's sort of saying, well, you know, why aren't we just orbiting, why aren't the planets just orbiting the centre of the galaxy rather than orbiting the sun? Yeah. I think that's what he's, that's, that's, that's the point. Um, well, uh, although, I mean, he's right, there's a, there is, we think there's this massive black hole, and that black hole would be, would be many times the, the mass of the Earth, probably, uh, it's mass of the Sun, I should say, probably millions of times the mass of the Sun, uh, maybe more. Um, and in fact, what matters, what matters also is not just the mass of the black hole at the middle of the galaxy, it's the mass of all of the galaxy within our radius, our distance from the centre of the Milky Way. So it's mm. all that material that's sort of inside our radius, all all the mass of that stuff added up, if you like, as if it were all concentrated at the middle, more or less. Um, and that that mass is vastly greater than the mass of the Sun. So in fact, that mass is probably something like uh, 10 to the power 11 times the mass of the Sun. So that's basically uh, 100 billion, 100,000 million times the mass of the sun so you think goodness me you know all all that extra mass um surely the force of gravity from from that from the milky way uh dominates over the force of gravity from the sun well in fact if you look at the numbers um the force of gravity if you can remember your basic uh, basic physics um newton's law of gravity um tells you that the force between two objects of of masses say m1 and m2 or something um that force is given by Capital G, it's a gravitational constant, times times each of the two masses, M1 times M2, divided by the square of the distance between them. So it depends on the, the masses of the objects and the distance between them squared. Um, so what we're interested in, in answering this question, is whether um, which force dominates over the other. So we have to look at, uh, effectively, the mass of the Sun divided by the distance from the Earth to the Sun squared, 
That's basically going to be, give us the force of gravity between the Earth and the Sun. Compared to the mass of the Milky Way divided by the distance from the Sun to the centre of the Milky Way squared. We should point out that we're considering, you can consider all the mass in the Milky Way galaxy inside the solar orbit as a single mass at the centre of the galaxy. Yeah. So that's the, that's the assumption in this sort of simplified, simplified model, yeah. So, um, so if you do that, you put in those numbers, well, you've got basically for the mass of the sun, it's, it's, um, it's two times 10 to the power 30 kilograms. Um, and the distance from the earth to the sun is, is, is 1.5 times 10 to the 11 meters, um, an astronomical unit. Uh, and then for the mass of the, uh, Milky Way, we'll take 10 to the 11 solar masses, 100,000 million times the mass of the sun and we'll take the radius the, di- the distance from the sun to the center of the milky way as about eight kiloparsecs so you know twenty four thousand light years or so um put those numbers in the ratio of those two um gravitational forces is about 30 million or so um so in other words the force of gravity between the earth and the sun is you know tens of millions times more than the force of gravity between the sun and the center of the milky way yeah, simply because the sun even though it is much much uh, lighter less mm. in mass than obviously everything else in the galaxy mm. in terms of a solar circle is just that much closer to us absolutely so in fact yeah it's a there's a there's a, it's 10 to the 11 times more more massive the milky way but the center of the milky way is actually 10 to the 9 times farther away and because it goes as the square that 10 to the 9 becomes 10 to the 18. Mm. So there's a factor 10 to the 18 due to the distance, and there's a factor 10 to the 11 that works in the opposite sense due to the mass, and that still st- still means that you're um, a factor 10 to the 7 times more gravity from the sun than there is from the Milky Way. Yeah, so that means that we take more notice of the sun's gravity than yeah. the, the rest of the Milky yeah. Way galaxy. Yeah, that's right. We're just that close to the sun um, that the sun matters more. So in fact, therefore, the planets do orbit in... In, um, in, in ellipses, in fact, about the sun. And of course, then the sun and the group of planets and the local group of stars and so on, then themselves will orbit around the Milky Way. Mm. So in a sense, you know, he asks, why don't we just travel in this massive orbit about the center of Milky Way? Well, we are actually. If you can imagine the, the, the planets doing these little orbits around the sun, cycling around the sun, and then this, that whole thing just sort of traveling out in a little sort of helical pattern, if you like, about the, about the center of the Milky Way. That's how we are. That's how we're moving. Um, and I think it's, I, I mean, maybe interesting just, just to, just to quickly mention some numbers in terms of how fast these things happen. How, you know, how, how long does it take us to, to travel around the, around the center of the Milky Way? Well, it takes us about 200 million years. The sun travels around the Milky Way about once every 200 million years or so, which, which actually means that if you think about it, the sun and the earth, the planets are, are, are about, um, five billion years old. So that's, uh, 5,000 million years. Um, then in fact, we've got, you know, 200, every 200 million years we go once round. So every thousand million years we've gone five times round. So in fact, we've gone round the, the middle of the Milky Way about 25 times or so since mm. the sun and the planets were born. So, you know, it's not insignificant. We've traveled round a number of times over the course of the lifetime of the, of, of the Earth. Um, in terms of the speeds we're traveling at, well, perhaps just working our way out from, you know, you and we know the Earth is spinning. Um, it takes 24 hours to spin around once on its axis, so you can work out, you know, take the circumference of the Earth at the equator, let's say, mm. uh, and divide that by the the, orbit, the the spin period, 24 hours, and you get the speed at which the Earth's surf, the Earth's surface is moving. That's about half a kilometre per second, something like that. It's about uh, 1,500 kilometres an hour. 
um, at the equator, and it's less as you work your way up towards the poles. Mm. That's relative to the centre of the Earth. Relative to the centre of the Earth. So you're sort of spinning at that speed. We're sort of all moving east if we were on the equator at about half a kilometre a second, 1,500 kilometres an hour. Um, the Earth then, as you imagine the Earth orbiting the Sun, that speed is, is about um, 30 kilometres a second, mm-hmm. which is about 100,000 kilometres an hour. So much faster. So we've gone from half a kilometre a second rotation speed to 30 kilometres a second orbital speed about about the about the sun. And then you think about the sun itself, with the planets orbiting it, the sun itself moving around the centre of the Milky Way, well, that speed is something like 220 kilometres a second. So you've gone from sort of half a kilometre per second spin um, to 30 kilometres per second orbital about the sun to 220 kilometres per second orbital about the centre of the Milky Way. So all these sort of motions are happening happening simultaneously. Hmm, it's interesting. Yeah. It's roughly an order of magnitude. Yeah, to go up, it is. Yeah, something along those lines, yeah. Ah, very good. Well, thank you very much for that, and thank you to Mark for the question. Next question comes from Chris Revy, and he writes, If the universe originated from one central point in the Big Bang, why do we have colliding galaxies? Well, I think, I guess, um, I mean, just to say, first of all, I think I think this question was probably stimulated um, by a press release recently from the uh, Space Telescope Science Institute, from the Hubble Space Telescope, um, to celebrate their 18th anniversary mm-hmm. uh, of, of, of HST operating. And what they did was release um, uh, 59 different views of colliding galaxies, galaxies smashing into one another, Lo- lovely pictures, um, feature on Astronomy Picture of the Day as well. And just to answer his question, what he's basically saying is, okay, if the universe originated from one central point in the Big Bang, I mean, we probably ought to point out that that's not really the best interpretation of the Big Bang, thinking about one central point. Um, in our understanding of the way that would work, the Big Bang would have happened everywhere. Yes. Um, there is no central point because all points are central. And Yeah, there's no there's no particular point. We sort of, it's hard to imagine. We sort of envisage the Big Bang happening over there somewhere mm. and everything mm-hmm. sort of expanding out away from it. But you know, Everything was over there. Yeah, yeah, and the Big Bang happened as much in your pocket as it did in, you know, on the other side of the universe. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, every everything expands away from everything else is the way, best way to think about it. So any two points in space are moving apart from each other in this large-scale cosmological picture. Mm. Okay. But that's, that's now, a hint, though, isn't it? It's large-scale. That's absolutely right. And that's why, you know, when I say that, when I say, and, and this is the problem that, that Chris refers to, is you think about everything expanding away from each other. How the heck can you have galaxies banging into each other? How can they be moving towards each other? And, in fact, you might take that argument one step further and say, well, if everything's expanding away from everything else, why am I not expanding away from you at the moment? <laughs> you don't seem <laughs> yes. to be getting any farther away from me at the moment. Maybe we are slightly or something. You know, This is the question. Is And, in fact, what the answer to this, this is really to do with whether it's related to the last question. In mm. fact, it's to do with whether things are gravitationally bound is the, is the thing we refer to. So it's the fact that these, these galaxies that are colliding together are sufficiently close together that the, the force of gravity between them dominates over the, uh, over the expansion of space time, over the expanding universe. And they can actually all, galaxies can orbit one another in groups and clusters and even crash into one another as we see in these pictures. Um, in the case of me and you, the forces that determine the way we are and, and things, perhaps are things like atomic forces stop my body expanding with the expansion of the universe. That dominates and gravity within the solar system would dominate as well over the cosmological expansion. So, yeah, um, we see groups and clusters of galaxies where, where gravity dominates and where they can collide together. The classic example locally, um, the Andromeda galaxy, is um, 
is M31 is is a, is a nearby large spiral galaxy. It's the, it's, it's the galaxy that you can see with the unaided eye. You know, it's the farthest you can see without using the telescope. You can just see that little smudge of light in the sky, um, and the, and therefore the farthest back in time you can see as well with your own eyes. Um, but that's moving towards us. Um, it's not expanding away from us like distant galaxies are. It's moving towards us. It'll actually merge with the Milky Way in about three three billion years. So in fact probably before the sun dies, before the sun expands to become a red giant, we'll, we'll merge with, with the Andromeda galaxy. Um, so this sort of thing has happened, happens all the time. It's happened perhaps, in fact, more commonly in the past in the universe. Um, and we think that, you know, what we often see are the merger of two spiral galaxies, so disc-like galaxies with spiral arms, lots of dust. Um, those things can merge together. We see them merge together. That can actually stimulate a burst of star formation. So you see many new stars being born in these mergers. It can also um, uh, cause material to flow, we think, into the central engine, the black hole at the core of these galaxies, and it can actually perhaps trigger um, active galactic nuclei. So these sort of quasar-like objects where you get this incredible brightening from the core of the galaxy, which then vastly outshines the rest of the galaxy. Um, and in fact, we think um, the merger of spirals is is what um, results in the formation of elliptical galaxies. So when we look around the sky and we see different shapes of galaxies, we see these disc-like ones, like our Milky Way, where the stars orbit the Milky Way in you know roughly circular orbits uh, in a plane. Um, we also see these other type of galaxies, elliptical galaxies, where the stars, um, the the planes of the orbits of the stars are, are oriented more randomly, and so you get a sort of three dimensional, perhaps like a sort of rugby ball or American football shaped um, object with, the, with 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 all the planes more of orbits more randomly oriented. We think those things are formed by merging two spirals. So you get these nice uniform disc-like galaxies crash into each other. The gravity of you know the interaction causes the orbits to be completely mixed up it causes a burst of star formation a lot of the gas and dust gets either used up in forming new stars or expelled from the galaxy entirely into intergalactic space and you end up with these gas poor very little interstellar medium very little stuff between the stars in these in these elliptical galaxies so it's a very 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 important process in the, in the, in the history and the evolution of the universe, the, the collision and merger of galaxies. Mm. So it's again a question of scale. Two galaxies close to each other would feel their respective gravitational forces much more than uh, or rather that, that would be much more important than the expansion of the universe. Yeah, and, and galaxies on a much larger distance from each other will be that, that force of gravity will be much weaker and the expansion of the universe wins out and, and they expand away from each other. Yeah. Very good. Next question comes from Malcolm Powell, and he writes, How do people get into astronomy these days? And he wants to know both from an amateur and a professional perspective. Good question. Um, if people are interested in astronomy, how, do you, how, how can you engage with it more? How can you become an astronomer in some sense, whether, you, whether you're paid to do it, as, as we are lucky to be paid to, to do it at the moment, um, or whether you just want to do it for fun, actually, and you know, in, in your spare time? Well, in terms of the professional side, in terms of getting paid to do astronomy, um, there's a pretty good website um, that the Royal Astronomical Society in the, in the UK um, host on the on 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 a pretty good web page that they describe what you should go through, um, what process you should go through. I would say the typical thing is to is to work. You know, if you're at school, you would you would choose subjects, um, concentrate on your science subjects, and particularly your maths. I would say I think maths is pretty fundamental to physical sciences like astronomy mm -hmm. do as well as you can at school in these subjects go to university study 
I would say probably physics. You can study astronomy. There are undergraduate courses which concentrate on astronomy particularly. Um, you can do maths. I mean, you know, if you if you're particularly mathematically inclined, you can study maths at undergraduate degree level and then still go on to concentrate on its application to astronomy. So either you know maths, physics, astronomy, or astrophysics. Those those subjects typically would be what you'd choose. I would say in the main to do astronomy. And, you know, depending on what country you're from, that might take a varying number of years, three, four years, something, something along those lines, maybe five years. You've then got to do as well as you can at that um, and then choose to do some postgraduate study. So um, we'll have both done PhDs at mm-hmm. some point. How long did your PhD take? Uh, mine took, I think, four years. Right, okay. So, so mine was supposed to be three years and eventually I got round to writing up after about four years. Yeah, so, yeah. so um, um, and I think, you know, in, in some countries it's a little bit longer. Um, people take maybe five years, sometimes even a few years longer than that occasionally, I think. Certainly in the, uh, even doing a PhD differs where you are in the world, in, yeah. in the UK or the Commonwealth system, it's simply a, a piece of sustained original research and so you go away and you you study something for three four years and write it up as a as a thesis and you're given a doctorate in uh, in the states i think you also have to do some more postgraduate papers more class work yeah. more exams yeah in, in addition to writing a thesis yeah that's right so i'm effectively just writing this big book about one particular topic and at the end of the day the end of the well it's not the day but the end of the three year three <laughs> four five years um you know you're probably you know you're gonna it should be a world expert really on the subject that you've you've picked you probably know more than you you'd have a supervisor who would have guided you through that through that process but you may well know more than your supervisor does about that specific topic certainly mm-hmm. about the details of of some of the things you've achieved in that work but it should be the point is to do something uh, new something original um, a new piece of work whether it be reliant on observations or on on theoretical interpretations of, of other people's observations um at the end of that process, you get awarded a PhD. You go through your examination, usually some form of oral examination. People read the book and that you've written the thesis and they ask you lots of detailed questions about it and you get awarded your PhD. Um, and then actually from that point on, it's, it's still the story's not ended because, um, you don't generally get some sort of permanent job in astronomy then. You typically have to do, um, fixed term contract research, uh, posts, um, and maybe lasting each lasting two or three years perhaps and you might have to go through several of those and then if you're looking to work permanently in astronomy usually commonly there what you'd be looking for is a job in a university um so working as a as a as a lecturer uh teaching um physics and astronomy and so on to other undergraduates but also carrying out your own research supervising research students and so on there are some jobs in observatories um so the actual you know, the observatories that do observations that astronomers use to make their observations will also have staff astronomer jobs, um, where often your role would be to, um, help develop instrumentation or help, um, visiting astronomers use those facilities. And then you would have a proportion of the time available to, to do your own research as well. And you'd be expected to do that. So, but it, so that's, I think that's probably the range of, does that give a fair idea of a, yeah, a that's, professional that's, astronomers? That's the professional route, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So on, on terms of um, uh, doing astronomy, you know, because it's a, an interesting thing to do, even if you've got another job that pays the pays the wages, pays pays your pays for your food and so on. Um, I think the the thing to do there, probably if you get want to get into that, I would say 
there's lots of information out there and one one there's many ways which you can access that these days uh, there's still some really good high quality magazines um, typically monthly magazines that are available that I would recommend people purchase things like Sky and Telescope or uh, Astronomy Now or the Sky at Night magazine for example um, are very good and they would they were full of articles about current uh, issues in astronomy news and views and so on and also you know what's around in the night sky um, if that's what you're interested in, if you want to know what what are these things that I can see in the sky when it's clear, um, then you probably want to get hold of one of these um, software packages that we talked about before that that uh, show you what's up in the night sky at any given time. If you want to move a little bit beyond just making visual observations yourself, you want to get yourself a telescope perhaps, then um, then there's, I think we have some resources on our website at Jodrell actually which talk about choosing a telescope or how to use binoculars for example for view in the night sky and give you some advice and guidance in in what to choose and what you might see and so on and then i think a good good idea is to think about um getting together with some like-minded individuals um you can always learn a lot from people who've had you know many years of experience um and the way to do that on this side is probably to look at a local astronomical society and uh, in the uk for example there's a there's a good website called that's run by a group called the federation of astronomical societies which brings together in one place a list of links to all the all the local societies with links to their own web pages and gives you contact details and so on for getting in touch and you probably find there's one within a reasonable drive of of, of wherever you live um, and those people will usually organize meetings say once a month or something where they'll have external speakers visiting astronomers will come and give talks and then they'll have uh, star party sessions where you can perhaps even use somebody else's telescope and get a feel for whether it's something you might want to invest some money in before you before you splash out yourself mm. um so i think astronomy is one of those things that you can get a good taste of what you what it's like to be uh, certainly an observational astronomer well before you uh, outlay lots of cash and buying kit i mean it's uh, you can start learning uh, immediately you can yeah. go out at night and as long as it's not cloudy yeah. you can take a star atlas and start yeah. learning yeah and in fact it's one of it's one of those sciences that you can make um, real contributions to um, without being you know without having it as a professional job if you like you can make you can make research level contributions with quite small telescopes and you know ccd cameras and so on it is a it's a reasonably significant investment of money maybe several thousand pounds needed to get yourself a telescope and a CCD camera, but you can discover supernovae and monitor asteroids and so on. That You know, it's a useful contribution to, to research astronomy, and there's not many sciences that, that you can say that for, I think. Yeah. There was a good, I don't know if you saw the story that was in, recently in the news here in the UK that was uh, about a new... Uh, observatory that was opened up in the Kielder Forest up oh, in, yes, up yeah, in the, Northumberland. Yeah, the darkest uh, sky in the UK. Yeah, so they looked at this sort of light pollution maps and found, you know, which bit of the sky in England was the was the uh, was the darkest. And they've put this new observatory up there, I, I think, run by local um, local astronomers, and uh, give people give the public an opportunity to go and have a look through a telescope and so on, and to to be able to do some, you know, interesting research level sort of uh, science. From, from from such a site with just a you know relatively modest uh, outlay in terms of the actual telescope and the equipment. Some of these uh, magazines you also mentioned, mm. uh, they provide projects or goals mm-hmm. or things for people to do. So mm-hmm. they might say, okay, you've got this size telescope. You might be asking yourself, what on earth do I do with it? I can look at stars, I can look at galaxies, but if I want to feel like I'm achieving something, 
you know, solid or, you know, producing new data or something like that. You know, what can I do? And these, uh, um, publications often suggest, well, watch this variable star, plot it, see what happens. There are all sorts of interesting transient events which you can mm-hmm. spot. For instance, like you mentioned, uh, comets and asteroids and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so the, 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 the bright sky, the near sky is accessible with mm-hmm. modest sized telescopes. And it's an interesting point you, hear from um, some astronomers, professional astronomers are always keen to use the big eight-meter telescopes to probe the, the distant and faint universe, and the, the, the bright universe has been recently rediscovered, so to mm-hmm. speak, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. realizing there's an awful lot going on, uh, which you can't use an eight-meter telescope for because no, that's right. the objects would be far too bright and be blinding. You know? yes. <laughs> yes. You'd have to stand there with a bit of cardboard blocking most of the mirrors. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, no, it's right. I mean, the small telescope astronomy is, 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 is going to be, is still a very interesting field. I mean, you know, I mean, one of the areas I work in is Novi, Nova Explosions, and, and we're still reliant on, uh, on uh, astronomers, you know, amateur astronomers who, who who scan the skies looking for these things, we mm. still we still re- rely on them for discovering them. So it's yeah, it's a it's a great thing to it's a great science to get involved with. I would say at that sort of a local level. I mean, the the other thing I would just mention as well is if you want to take that a bit further and become a you know do a bit something a bit more formal in terms of your um, training, um, even if you're not thinking about going down the uh, professional astronomy uh, route, uh, it's worth thinking about taking some of these. Uh, uh, short courses that are offered and in fact we do offer some from Jodrell um, sort of distance learning courses that are delivered over the internet um, intended for people to do part time some that include visiting Jodrell using the radio telescopes at Jodrell um, themselves, in fact I've got a group of students who at the moment are uh, mapping the Milky Way with our, with our 7 metre radio telescope from home from the back bedroom. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's not just Jodrell that offer those courses as well. There's, there's several, there's universities in the UK, Liverpool, John Moores, University of Central Lanks, the Open University offer similar courses in the UK and other universities would obviously offer those in other countries as well. So it's worth looking out for those sorts of maybe these internet based courses, but also evening courses offered by local colleges or universities just to maybe put some of the, some of your understanding of things on a bit more of a formal, Educational footing, if if you want to take it to that level, mm. and it's relatively easy to do. I mean, now with the internet and communications being as they are, yep. studying uh, at a distance is, has become easier yeah. than it ever has been. I think that's right. Yep, that's true. So it's um, yeah, the po- the popular it's popular thing to do, and it's you know it's typically people who are doing those are not looking to get into astronomy on a uh, on a full time basis, but some are, and some are, and some in fact manage to achieve that, so they go through that sort of part time route. Um, by by following this route through, and then manage to you know they're good enough to transfer across and and jump onto the onto the professional astronomy bandwagon as well, and get themselves a job in a in an observatory. So there you go, Malcolm. I hope that helps. Thank you very much, Tim, for answering that and the previous questions. No problem. Thanks, Nick and Tim. And hopefully, Nick will be back with us live for the June edition of the Jodcast, when we will have the night sky and, of course, the news with Megan. But thanks must go now to Martin Watts, who gave us our intro-outro joke. If you have any suggestions or anything that you would like to hear on the intro-outro, or you have any taxing questions yourself that you'd like to set to all of the other Jodcast listeners, then send them in. We do appreciate your feedback, your emails, your Facebook, whatever. Just uh, let us know that you're out there. So just go to our website, www.jodcast.net, and use the feedback form to get in contact with us. Yes, please. 
so thank you to all of you, our listeners, for downloading us, and we look forward to gracing your speakers in June. So until then, take good care of yourselves, and don't forget to jod on. So, before the Jodcast, I asked you, how many astronomers does it take to change a street lamp bulb? And the answer? Two. One to take out the old bulb and... Well, actually, make that one. <laughs>